This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Independent news and journalism is one of the main cornerstones of a healthy democracy. But recent years have seen the media landscape in Australia shrink to become one of the most concentrated in the world. When the pandemic set in at the beginning of 2020, many media outlets in Australia felt the pinch, none more so than our national newswire, the Australian Associated Press. My guest today played an integral part in saving it from closure in the face of great uncertainty. Hi everyone, I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I speak to John T. Lowe, who is the first female chair of the Australian Associated Press. AAP is a media institution in this country with its journalists providing reliable and fact-based news to media outlets across the country every day. In today's conversation, Jonty shares more about her career trajectory in business, her passion for promoting independent journalism, and how she came to chair one of the most important news organisations in the country. Jonty, hello. Hello. So nice to have you here today. Quite the intro. Well, well deserved. <laughs> I'm going to start by acknowledging that we are both doing this podcast today online because we're in the middle of a COVID lockdown. Um, but I'd like to acknowledge that we both come to this podcast from land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm on Camaragal land today. Where are you? Gadigal land. Great. So on that note, let's launch straight in. Congratulations on becoming the chair of AAP over a year ago now. Thank you. Yeah, nearly a year. It is. I have to say that, and you and I have talked about this, in the lead up to these podcasts, I always do a bit of research to know my guests well. And it's been, you've been elusive. It's been <laughs> research on you. There's not much luck on you. I, I started laughing halfway through your question because I, I get this all the time. I'm I'm one of those people that you Google and don't find enough about. You, you find enough, uh, enough to know that I exist uh, and that I've done a couple of roles and then there's not a lot of padding in between. So uh, that's accident, not design. Okay. All right. So you haven't stayed away from social media on purpose. I haven't. I haven't. I've always worked in the background uh, and kept a pretty low profile. Until AAP. Until AAP. <laughs> so I heard a rumour that, and um, it'd be great if you could substantiate the rumour given that you've got fact-checking at AAP, mm. but mm. I heard that you are the first female chair of any national newswire in the world. That's what we that's what we understand that I'm the first female chair and Emma's the first female CEO. So it's yet to be substantiated, Shirley. Um, we haven't put the team onto that yet, but I'll I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take we'll that take today. It as, we'll take it as a given today, <laughs> shall we? So first female chair coupled with the first female CEO, and you follow in the line of quite illustrious names, Frank Packer, Keith Murdoch. Does the weight of tradition or the weight of that, do you feel that? Uh, look, it's, a, it's an honour to follow in those footsteps, but I don't feel any pressure. Which is, which is a positive thing because then you can do it the way you think it needs to be done. Yeah, and I, I look, I think because there was a structural change as well, that feels quite different. I think my predecessors were part of an AAP1 and I am part of AAP2 and I try not to 
uh, I tried not to weigh myself down with any expectations and yeah I don't think about that that's cool I just think I just think about the future of AAP which is the most important thing yeah I think for many people out there it's probably fair to say that they hadn't heard of AAP until March 2020 when it looked like we might lose AAP and at that point it became kind of the centre of a lot of conversation out there. I think the Prime Minister said, I've got a quote here where he said, when you have such an important institution such as AAP coming to an end, that is a matter of real concern. Anthony Albanese said, today is a tragedy for our democracy on the day that it was announced that you might shut down. Mm. Can you explain to the listeners why AAP is so important, but also where AAP might come into their daily lives because a lot of them might not know. So AAP used to be owned by shareholders. The main ones were News and Nine. Uh, And so in terms of where AAP would have come into people's daily lives, uh, probably every day at, at that point in time prior to August last year, because the content was appearing in every single masthead around Australia. Uh, And today in AAP 2.0, we appear in over 400 outlets. So uh, some examples, The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, uh, a lot of regional papers, radio stations, where we probably in most people's day at some point in time. And is that because, I mean, I know a little bit about AAP from you, but is that because Every masthead can't afford to send journalists out everywhere. So there are certain topics like courts and sport in particular that AAP will cover and then create articles that are very fact-based, no opinion, and send those out to all those mastheads around the country that have subscriptions. Correct, yeah. So a newswire is really for that purpose. It's just to pull the resources. And as as you said, courts are very expensive to cover, sports, politics. And if you think about the regional papers, for example, they can't afford to have people in the cities covering these things. And it just makes sense to pull the resources on that content. And I think the other important point about AAP, we, we don't have bylines. So none of our journos are known by their names. I mean, people in the industry know them, you know, they are known, but their name does not appear at the bottom of the articles. It's always just AAP, which is really part of the organisation I really like. It is lovely. And in the last, I guess in the last year or so, we've all seen the influence that media outlets can have in a democracy, especially in the United States towards the last election. I imagine if we got rid of AAP as a as an organisation in this country, we'd be open to those media outlets exerting a whole lot more influence. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's really where we were at last year when the closure was announced. Uh, we're the only independent newswire in the country. We're 85 years old. We have a brand. We have a reputation. Uh, and we're known for fact-based news. That's all we do. We don't, we don't have any political acts to grind. We don't have any shareholders to please anymore. So if AAP didn't exist, it would be a problem. I think existing monopolies would grow their reach and not having an independent newswire for me is quite dangerous for democracy. I've become aware in the last um, 18 months in particular that, you know, you go onto social media and the news that we are fed every one of us, is based on algorithms of what we go and look at. So we're fed more of the same all the time. And so I see AAP articles 
uh, Jonti, in the main press that I'm reading. But if people out there want to know how they can support AAP going forward to make sure that we don't end up in a situation like last year again and it becomes stronger and better, how can they do that? Well, we had a GoFundMe campaign last year and that's still ticking along, but the really good news happened in the budget. Uh, We were given DGR, so people are able to make donations directly on our website uh, or to contact the organisation direct and and make donations. And for the people out there who are wondering what DGR is, it just means that if you make a donation, they can claim it as a tax deduction. Correct, yeah. Which is great, which is great. So now I want to move to you. Um, and understand better the journey that you've been on over your career that brought you to this role. Give us a little bit of a rundown about what you, what Jonty Lowe has done uh, <laughs> in the last decade or two, and then we'll delve in deeper. So we'll stick with the, the PG version. Uh, <laughs> post-school, I, I travelled a little bit uh, and came back as a mature age student and studied media and communications. So my intention at that stage was to work in the media industry and a lot of people that were around me kept saying, oh, you've got to work in media, you've got to work in media. I've I've always had the you've got to do, you've got to do people in my ear. Did you you think you wanted to work in media as a young child or as a young woman? No, no. My my dream was to be a singer-songwriter, which is actually what I did. I I did dabble in and Dad was always very concerned that that wasn't quite the (laughs) the hook to hang my coat on. So, look, I still do that as a hobby. Maybe a few bars today before we start. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Bit throatish early. Uh, So, yes, I studied media and communications and I did really well. I think because I was a mature age student, I wasn't hanging out at the bars and getting drunk and I really enjoyed it. And when I finished that degree, I had the opportunity to work at one of the big four firms. Um, So none of my life has been planned. Opportunities come up and I will often just say yes. And whatever I say yes to, I just think I'll just do it for a while and see how it goes. And while I was at the big four, I had another opportunity to work at the Committee for Sydney, which is a business advocacy group, which I ended up leading for 10 years. One of the things that we've talked about on this podcast with our guests is whether their career journeys have been serendipitous or whether they've been planned. And I think you said earlier, you've never planned anything. You've just kind of taken opportunities as they've come up. Do you have a a personal rule? Like, does it have to be hell yes? Or does it just, is it a gut instinct that makes you understand what you're going to say yes to or no to? How do you go through that process? I, I actually don't think I've ever had a hell yes moment in terms of career but I just think if it's a mildly interesting opportunity or an interesting one or or often some of these things come out of people just asking if I can help them for a period of time and then that merges into another opportunity um and you know I've been very fortunate because they've all ended up being quite interesting and taken me on a path that I I would never thought to have planned. Do you think young people today are encouraged to plan too much? Absolutely. And I I say this to my niece and nephew all the time. I've got some over in the States and um, some here. And I always say to them, what do you want to be? And it's fantastic because they don't know yet. 
that they feel pressured to say something. And I say to them, it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to know. I still don't know what I want to be. And I'm nearly 50. Yeah, I agree. I'm still working it out. Yeah. <laughs> I said to somebody else recently, you know, when I was, I became kind of a leader in inverted quotes of a group when I was 30. Mm. And back then there was no such thing as leadership training. There mm. was, you didn't plan anything. I fell into everything in my career. I, I was opportunistic. I said yes to most things. I Unless there was a really good reason to say no, I didn't. And I've had one or two hell yeses. These days when I meet with young people who are trying to plan what they're doing and where they're going, what their journey looks like, there's a real attraction to planning every part of it, where they want to be in five years, where they want to be in 10 years, where they want to be next year, you know, when they want to start leading a group, all of that sort of stuff. And I think there's real value in the serendipitous nature or the opportunistic nature of Mm. how we used to do it. I agree. And it's almost become the Murray Kondo of resume design. You know, I I don't know where the quote was from, but I remember it. Somebody saying, don't plan your life designing your resume, plan your life designing your obituary, which which is a reverse way of living. And look, I don't do either. But I think there's a lot of pressure when it comes down to having to have things on paper that define you. I think it's as dangerous as the number of likes that you get on Facebook to make you valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I see it in my kids these days. I mean, thank goodness they don't spend a huge amount of time on social media. But, you know, it becomes, I think there's that addictive nature in it too. So you're at Midi of Sydney for 10 years. What were the big lessons you learned during that time? You said you were some amazing people. (laughs) Every life lesson you could imagine. Uh, I I saw and heard and learned so much, Shelley, and most of it I couldn't repeat. Look, I, I really saw how politics and policy and media intersect. I think they were the biggest lessons coming out of it, and I don't think I was aware of it at the time because I was in it and around it, but looking back, Um, the intersection of all of those plays was really (laughs) just circling all around me. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, wow. When you went into that role, did you think of yourself as a leader? Did that develop or how did it? (laughs) I know you're laughing, but I don't think we wake up and say, oh, I'm a leader. I I still don't think I'm a leader. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't have any sense of myself in that way. I... um, I just want to do good work and make change. And hopefully, like, you know, in, in the old days, I didn't have this rule, but my my new role is the, I just won't work with assholes anymore. Yeah, I've got the same rule. I just want to work with good people. Good I have people a, on good things. Yeah, I have a theory that if you work with great people, then your title doesn't matter, the job description doesn't matter, because actually you'll end up doing great things. A hundred percent. So I'm not I'm not one for hierarchy. I don't like people treating people differently according to their job title uh, or place of work. I've I've just I've never subscribed to that. I just don't like it. I think humans are human. Uh, everyone has strengths. Everyone has weaknesses, and you can learn something from everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody said to me years ago, one of my mentors said, you can learn something from every conversation you have with every single person. And if you're not, it's because mm. you're not listening hard enough. Mm. And I have taken that with me. I don't always succeed, but um, I think it's a really important life lesson. Yeah, yeah. For young women starting out today, John T, and I know that you mentor a number of young women, 
for young women, what's the life advice you give them? Uh, look, I'm I'm probably not a good influence for some young women. Look, I I was always I was in, always in a fortunate position where if I didn't like a job or was being treated badly or was in a situation I didn't want to be in, I could always just say, forget it, I'm out of here. And I don't think a lot of people are, are in that position. And that's hard. Like if you have to pay the rent, if you have to pay the bills, if you can't leave your job, then you're stuck. The most recent group of younger women that I worked with, I always encouraged them to speak up when they felt that they weren't being treated right and to also step up because I never had, well, I had two significant female people in my life who really pushed me up and out and I had a number of women who would often push me down and I always just try to, whoever I speak to, men and women, but particularly young women, just show them new horizons and I find, particularly this last group I worked with, their wings were almost clipped and I don't, I don't like that. I think you should go and explore and take some risks and see, see what life has to offer. But again, not everyone's in a position where they can just say, forget it, I'm out of here and I'm going to try this. So, so it's a hard one. But I, I just don't subscribe to proper behaviour. I think you should not have to present as something or speak in a particular way. Or I, I just try and encourage people to be who they are. You're talking, you're talking about the notions that we've developed about what proper is. I mean, you were a judge on the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards and we talked about um, leadership in all its guises. You know, it can look different and sound different and appear differently. I always think that you talked about those women who didn't lift you up and didn't give you opportunities. Did you learn a lot from those women as well? Look, the only thing that I learned was that I don't want to treat people like that. But no, I didn't. I didn't beyond that because something in me just cut off. I don't like that. Uh, I don't like people who don't treat people nicely. Um, and when it's directed at me, something in me just cuts off. Yeah, I find it, um, it plays havoc with the inside of my head. You know, those voices inside my head go rampant when I'm dealing with people like that, men or women. Because I start to question my own confidence and my own ability. Do you have that? Oh, I did when I was younger and I don't now. Um, look, sometimes it'll creep in every now and then, but I just have to tell myself I'm not going to lose sleep over this or waste valuable minutes of my life because they're not thinking about me at all and I've got better things to do. Yeah, it's a really good way to think about it. Do you have, we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the voices in our head, mm. you know, the positive voices that tell us we're great, the not so positive voices. How do you deal with yours? Oh, you know, I've got a, <laughs> I've got an orchestra up there, Shirley. <laughs> I think one of the reasons I've been talking about it with our guests is because when I was growing up as a young baby lawyer, I never realised it was normal. I didn't, nobody talked about it. You know, I just thought that I was so much in my head, it was my problem. But the truth is, we all have them, we all deal with them. And you know, we've talked to a number of guests about how they deal with theirs and I'm hoping that by the end of the series every listener will find some method that resonates with them and realise that they're actually quite normal. Yeah. Uh, look, I and the more women I speak to, well, and, and men for that matter, very successful people, uh, whenever I bring it up, 
everyone has the voices. Uh, so, look, I, I don't. I, I just try and crush them quite quickly and move forward. Otherwise, it just cripples me. And you don't want it to be debilitating, do you? No, 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 no. So no. in those um, times, we've talked about resilience as well. Where do you get your resilience from? Do you get it from people, internal strength? Hmm. Uh, look, I think for some key moments in my life, certainly. And um, I think it's in my gene pool. My, my my dad and my grandmother particularly, both very strong and they just kept moving, ton of people. And I think that's it. You have two choices. You either stop or you keep moving. And look, look in some in some ways, it's probably bad because you can distract yourself with work until you're blue in the face. But but again, if the other alternative is to stop and feel feel bad and mope, look, sometimes that's that's good for a period of time. But I think it's just keep keep moving. Yeah, and no, I think that's great advice for people. So what's next for John T. Lowe? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure we finished your life story. So we... well, I was about to say, you've cut me no, short, you, Shirley. <laughs> Every time there's a sentence, I want to ask about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't feel like talking about that anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, after the committee for Sydney, so I worked in the tourism policy space for a while. I worked briefly at the City of Sydney. So there's always confusion between the City of Sydney and the committee for Sydney. I was a producer on their big events there and then got into the impact investing space and I'm, I'm a director of a funds management business. Wow. So don't try cutting cutting that out of my <laughs> life history, no, not young all. lady. Not at all. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? So you've, you're in media and you're at the intersection of media policy and politics and then funds management or impact investing and now AAP, which you're doing concurrently, I imagine, with your funds management. Yes, yeah. We tell millenniums now that they can have a number of careers. I think the current mm. projection is that by the time they retire, they'll have 14 different careers. Mm. You've already been doing that before it became fashionable. I, I, look, I've done so many things before it was fashionable. So <laughs> I, I was working from home before COVID, before it was fashionable. Now everyone's on to you. Well, it depends. If you don't have kids, I don't have kids, so it's fine. Look, the 10-year stint was my longest career. Um, that's a long time, I, though. That's not. I mean, that's not short. No, but back then it, it was relatively long. But people had longer career mm. trajectories. So, oh, look, I like I like that young people can just move around now. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I do too. I also think you know I look at my career and I think I couldn't have done what I'm doing now without the role before, and I couldn't have done that without the role that came before. And I feel that even though I feel like I've had four different careers during my lifetime. Each one has been building a set of skills and so the skills become transferable into other industries and doing other things. Do you feel like that's been the case for you as well? You've been building a portfolio of skills? Yes, but again, not by design, just just by circumstance. So what are the skills you think that have set you up for success that you brought bring to the chair role of AAP, for example? Oh, look, my understanding of the mechanics of government uh, policy, the way the media works, I've got a good network, uh, I understand uh, the philanthropic side of things because now, now we're a not-for-profit and a charity, so that's a very different structure. It's gone from a corporate structure to a not-for-profit structure and I've worked in, I've worked across both, both sectors, the not-for-profit and also government 
John T, one of the things that we've been exploring on this podcast is ways to work for the next decade. And you mentioned that you started working from home before it became fashionable. What do you think are going to be the important things that we need to focus on in the next decade? I mean, COVID's given us an opportunity to reset. You know, we had to work from home. We had to pivot organisations really quickly. But it seems like we're at a precipice where we can choose to do things differently. What does that look like for you? Uh, I I think it's pretty much already in play in terms of AAP and certainly with the fund. It's just about changing structures and doing things differently for purpose and for good change. There's no point doing things only for profit. I mean, I know there's people that will argue with me on that runt, but yeah, I just think different structures. We don't need to continue with traditional structures anymore. Some of them work, some of them don't. I think you're absolutely right. We can actually look back at the things that haven't worked and cast them aside in favour of doing things differently and looking at things differently. And I read a research study recently that talked about the connection between meaningful work Hmm. and, um, and choosing what you do and how the stronger the connection is. And everybody's meaning is different. Your meaning is different to my meaning. But the stronger that resonates for you as an individual, the more work won't feel like work, the more passionate you'll be about what you do. It sounds like in your career you've always chosen what you're going to do. Has purpose or the end result one of the things that you've looked at? It wasn't originally, but I also originally never felt that my work was work, if that makes sense. I I always enjoyed what I was doing, otherwise I didn't do it. And really ever since my dad died, which was about five years ago now, his death really made me reevaluate what I was doing and why. And that's when I really became more focused on no assholes and just not doing anything that doesn't have some good result in the end apart from profit. Yeah, that's great. I really like that. And I think, you know, I think there's a way to connect profit to purpose. Yeah, they don't have to be separate. You can do good and make plenty of money along the same way. But also, I think revisiting the way that the relationships are in terms of hierarchies and how people treat each other, I think that can change as well. I think that's right. I think if at the end of the day, if you work with good people who are looking for the good in other people and are looking to do good work, whatever that might mean for those people, and treat people well, you're going to end up with better results and that inadvertently will make you money. Yeah, absolutely. And don't aspire for a title. I agree. I agree. I think we still put too much credence on titles and Mm -hmm. we look at people differently based on what their title is or isn't. Yes. And that always shocks me because I think you don't need a title to be a good leader. Yeah, absolutely. And and those those people, the ones that it matters to, they're the ones that I tend to (laughs) move away from. Yeah, not my people. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for John T. Lowe? Hmm. In terms of the immediate future, uh, the focus is absolutely on AAP. It's so important that we continue to have an independent newswire. An analogy that I have is we wake up in the morning, we turn the taps on and we just know that water will come out and we just know that the water will be safe to drink. That's what AAP is to me. We, We know that it's a trusted news source. We can consume it and we can believe what's written there as fact. 
And that is an important pillar in Australia that we can't afford to to lose. And so AAP is absolutely the focus. We will build the organisation and grow it into a sustainable business so that all Australians can be secure in the fact that they have a source of fact-based news. John T. Lowe has a big job ahead of her as chair of the Australian Associated Press. But as you've heard, her career journey has been diverse and in this next role, she will no doubt pull from all the skills she has gathered during that journey. Hearing her speak about her previous managers, the good and the bad, and how she has learnt from them and how she models her behaviour on the best of them was also so interesting. Everyone we work with clearly has an impact on us. It's up to us to decide what that impact is. Thank you for sharing this time with us today. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. Have a great week, everyone. Until next time, see you soon. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.